0: is
1: gonna have the news it's Monday. October 21st 21st LA podcast we're all back together again I was out of town last week for part of the episode great episode I was listening to it on my way back from uh, San Francisco to the two of you. Thank you. Like, this is great. That's <laughs> so smart. Uh, it's a great show.
0: I like listening to the podcast when I'm not on it. It's so entertaining. Right.
1: And you don't have to do anything. Yeah. That's what I like yeah. the most. <laughs> it's so much easier. But who would like to tell an LA story? We have a decent amount of stuff this week and I have some LA stories
2: backed up in the system. So I, I had an interesting transit week where I, went, I was up in uh, Ventura County for a uh, couple days for work. Got to take the MetroLink up to Ventura, which I don't think I've actually done before. It was pretty cool, just like getting to see that whole area, Chatsworth up to Oxnard, where I was where I was staying from MetroLink. Unfortunately, I was sick. I I kind of talked about this during our last episode. I was like. Thinking I was getting sick and then I decided it was the fires and then I was, I was, I was actually incorrect.
1: You can, oh, like you're more vulnerable to sickness yeah. when the air is, is bad, bad, I
2: think. Yeah, I, think I would blame true. the fires. But anyway, it was, it was cool. I I was, I like doing the Metrolink. I like seeing things that I haven't seen that way. I think the only one I haven't been on now is the Antelope Valley. I don't think I've ever taken it out at Antelope Valley way, but now I think I've ridden all the other Metrolink lines. And also this past week, I I took the orange line for the first time. I'd never just never done it before. Wow. But I've only taken it, I think, once. It
0: surprises me, Scott.
2: I mean, what a week. There's not much that takes me out to the valley. and I'm crossing the valley multiple times in a week. It is truly a rare occasion. I don't know. I have one short story and one long one. The short one
1: is I got in my first severe scooter accident. (laughs) I was riding on the sidewalk and just like hit a bump in the pavement or something, and just you f- were
0: riding on the sidewalk.
1: Also. I was riding on the okay. sidewalk, yes. Thank goodness. Yeah, right. Exactly. And just fully wiped out. You don't know, see the bruise? Yes. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. It's like this was Monday before last. And kind that's of looks, what like, it looks like now. It looks like the city that of
0: LA because is- it's got like a hole in the middle where like other cities are it's and very it like geographic. interesting that
1: is very bad yes it wow. was bad it was bad but so. I, I i managed to walk it off and i was wearing a helmet which was great because I, I hit my head pretty hard <laughs> <laughs> so it, wow I mean, did you just walk it off afterward were you like uh yeah i just uh, got up and and kept going because i <laughs> the cars could see me and i was embarrassed, embarrassed yeah. about just like laying out on the sidewalk. <laughs> Next story. I went to a meet, so uh, there are all these Dem clubs in the
2: city of LA that I'm learning about. Not
0: dumb clubs, if you can't understand. No, these are Dem
2: clubs. That that could be cutting uh, editorializing based on the rest of the story. Democrat
1: clubs with like every neighborhood has like multiple clubs like this. And I never really knew what the deal with them was, but you see all these like endorsement lists for different candidates and a lot of them have Democrat clubs listed. So one night this week, Nithya Raman, who I've been volunteering with for uh, City Council, she was having a, a forum on youth homelessness at her office at the same time as this meeting of the West Side Young Democrats. They were doing like an endorsement meeting, and I was basically deemed like the least essential person who could like uh-huh. go out to Culver City to uh, to speak in favor of Nithya for this uh, for their endorsement. I figured, you know, we'll go out and make the case for this person to a group of, like, engaged people who are uh, ready to make an a unbiased decision on this sure. issue. Yeah, I show up. Everyone, Many, many people in this house where the endorsement meeting was are wearing blazers. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's a little odd. Like, young young, young Democrats. that's <laughs> not really. What were you wearing? Uh, what was I wearing? Great question. Just a straight up blue button down.
0: Before or after your bruise.
1: This was, three, I, normally three. I would have worn shorts <laughs>
0: <laughs> hel- with your helmet.
1: But so I walk in, everyone's wearing blazers and I realize that they are all coming from work. Uh-huh. Many of them from the office of David Rue, who's one of the candidates in this election. And I was like, okay, well, some of them are here to like speak yeah. for David Rue. Like that makes sense that they yeah. would send some people from the campaign. But it turned out this was the second meeting of the club ever. And the way the endorsement process worked was you could pay, if you were under 35, yeah. you could pay $35 and get a vote in this endorsement process. That seems odd. And so the room is like, was packed with basically representatives from the various campaigns who were there to pay money, who had not been involved in this club before, as very few people had, because this was the second meeting of the club ever, right. to
2: buy a vote right. in this process. So basically, if you had enough people turn out and with, up, cash. with cash, yes, you could purchase this endorsement from this club and that sort of exists, but it's really also sort of just like a name. It sounds like that you can just like stick on a, a flyer like the West Side. That's
1: the reward you get to put on your list of endorsements, uh, West Side Young Democrats. And I was like surprised by this. I assumed that this was like kind of an anomalous process. But I was talking to people from another campaign and they said, this is basically how it works. everywhere the campaigns pack the room whether it's like money or like just like you get people associated with your campaign to join these clubs so they're on the endorsement committees and then they are part of the voting population interesting and you know you end up with a long list of endorsements but i've always wondered like how that plays out and the whole process was like very just like totally bewildering to me and to the experience of going Mm. to advocate for a candidate almost exclusively to people who work for other campaigns <laughs> was very discouraging.
2: Yeah, I, I can't imagine how you structure your pitch. Yeah,
1: right? It's like, okay, here we go. I'm gonna win these people over, many of whom are on the payroll of of these other operations. So I mean, and then I thought afterwards I was like, oh, we could have gotten this. We could have put together. We have more young people who would have, would have shown up to this thing if we
2: could have mobilized them and would have paid thirty five dollars. But what is the point? It, it, you get this name on your list. You yeah. So you you end up with when you're sending out mailers, I guess it's just it ends up just being a list of clubs, organizations. Very unlikely that anybody who receives the mailer is going to pick any given one of those and either like investigate what their activities are, far much less their um, membership and who is the, the voting constituency of mm-hmm. this group. So you just kind of end up with a general sense of this person is supported by active Democrats of the city of L.A. Right. And there's no way to distinguish the the names
1: on the list. The thing that depressed me most about seeing all these staffers and former associates of David Rue at this uh, Westside Young Dems meeting is that through SELA, we had worked really, really hard to get the attention of mm-hmm. this office, other city council offices to provide access center, like other services, and to see all the mobilization yeah. that was created for the second meeting of a dem club just to get an endorsement, even yeah, like a stamp
2: basically on a mailer.
1: Yeah. I mean, like we had a fundraiser for SELA in the district yeah. that if if he had sent twenty people to pay thirty five dollars, that would have been huge for yeah. us. But instead, it was to buy an endorsement. And I worry about where the effort is going, where the focus is yeah, for right. a lot of these offices when we're facing all these crises. But anyway, Rue Wids and then the the club members, the institutional club members who had been there for the first meeting, are like, okay, now we have some like new business to take care of. And there's just this like mass exodus oh, yeah. of all the people who just showed up to buy a vote uh, who are now members of this club right. <laughs> are not willing to stay for the end of the meeting i did not pay but I, I was so your like, conscience was clear when you when you left i mean sort of i didn't feel like it was the best use of my time <laughs> but i guess a little shred of my dignity was still there and i missed this great homelessness event all around it was a wonderful evening Alyssa, what's your la story
0: I was at the California Bicycle Summit this week, which was held at the California Endowment by Union Station, otherwise known as a wake for SB one two seven, which yes. the governor had vetoed, like on the eve of the California Bicycle Summit, which they had. Uh, it was their bill, and we t- Scott and I talked about last week, like what that meant, and the endless uh, bogus reasons for the veto uh, were discussed in yeah. in much detail. And one of the finest moments of the summit was. Uh, Someone from Caltrans got up there to give like an opening welcome or whatever from, you know, from the people who are actively trying to destroy the bicycle infrastructure. Uh And they said something like, "Uh, well, you know, it's great. We want to try to, you know, make streets safer and have fewer cars. But, you know, we still got to move packages. Everybody wants their Amazon Prime deliveries. Yeah. And Assemblymember Laura Freeman gets up after him and says, I don't think that moving Amazon packages is more important than saving children's lives. And the room just went like, so I had like in my talk, I had some Caltrans sub tweets. Like it just kept coming up, which was great. Like everyone just kept saying this is we're done with this. Basically. Sub
1: tweets. (laughs) Like when you posted defund Caltrans. (laughs) (laughs) That same day.
2: I felt like very sub. This was, this was uh, the week that Alyssa and I became fully uh, Twitter (laughs) co-conspirators. I had the it's hashtag true. defund Caltrans <laughs> in my Twitter bio. Oh, my it God. It was great. I mean,
0: it was wonderful to be around so many people doing great stuff in the state. And uh, there was a lot of inspiring stories to be told. But it was it was very hard the first morning on Wednesday when I had to do give, to give two talks. And my phone starts loading up two deaths mm-hmm. in the morning rush hour. One was a person who was at uh, Pico Sepulveda, I mm-hmm. think, yep. uh, hit and run. They later found the driver. The other one was, this one was like really intense because it was a four-year-old mom was walking her to school like I do every day and complain every day about how dangerous it is. And the person that hit them was a mom with three kids in her car. Mm -hmm. So now you have, you know, five lives destroyed. And the mother was
1: hit as well. Yes, but she was fine. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, and just you know, getting up on stage to talk about these things and having your phone be blowing up with just the latest example of how we're failing to eat. Just, this, just start with the schools. I mean, I don't even care if you want to fight about road diets on like Mar Vista. Just put in the safety infrastructure around the schools. I mean, come on. Nobody's going to be mad about that.
2: I mean, just the, the fact, though, that this this was happening, like like you said, this was immediately after the, the SB127 veto. I, I, I think one of the things that we hit on last week was that A big part of the reason that Newsom said that it wasn't necessary to mandate changes to how we design our streets from a a legal perspective was because he, from an executive and an administrative perspective, was already in the process of changing the culture at Caltrans. And then you have Caltrans come out and basically just be like, no, like we are, we are exactly who everybody knows that we are. Um, We don't care about the safety of people moving through the cities. We, We care about moving as many delivery trucks through city streets as fast as possible.
0: Yeah, this this was like, it made me so mad that I did what I normally do and is go write a story for Curbed LA about banishing cars from certain parts of the city. We proposed (laughs) seven streets that, because I don't know if you, we also, at the same time that the bicycle summit was going on, um, San Francisco voted to approve their Better Market Street plan, which is taking cars off of the busiest stretch Mm -hmm. of the busiest street in their downtown. And, you know, buses will still go and taxis or if you have paratransit, all that stuff, that's all accessible for people who need to get there on cars. But, you know, private cars have to go through or around, and it, yep. they won't be able to travel on it anymore. So I started thinking about that too, about like, okay, well, if they can do it, and if we've seen, seen what happened in New York with 14th Street, where they made another super congested, crowded street, a bus-only street, and everybody is happy, and there's no problems with it whatsoever. I mean, bus ridership's yep. up, cut, there's no, like, cut through traffic on other streets, uh, the noise, the pollution, everything is, is dreamy.
2: We are like to, to say that we're being lapped by other major cities in, in America in terms of like transit infrastructure and, and uh, like just safety for pedestrians is such an understatement at this point because we are at best completely stagnating. We're
0: getting left by like Indianapolis. Right, exactly. Like, I mean, we're so far behind. We can't even catch up to like a mid-sized Midwestern city.
2: Indianapolis has painted bus lanes, something and that- And bike lanes. Something that-
0: Protected bike lanes too.
2: We tried and failed to implement in a tiny part of downtown for bikes only and then walked back because like a couple movie producers thought that it didn't look authentically like the 1920s anymore, which Brilliant. I mean- it's not the 1920s so you know this is the kind of thing where like the 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 total stagnation at best that we're achieving right now is so starkly at odds with all of the rhetoric that we're hearing from metro from mayor garcetti the like king of climate mayor mountain or whatever he is at this point He, he he just continually is like heaping like inaccurate statement after statement about where we're going to be. Like the, the, One of the big things that I think you referenced in your article was was that he says that we're going to be 50% of trips are going to be car free by 2035, where it's just like, where's the movement on this? Yeah,
0: it's just simple math. You look at the streets and you're like, okay, we need to put that on are the we, ground. Aren't we
2: going the opposite direction <laughs> yeah. currently? Like more trips are, are, sure. are taking place on cars than they were when Garcetti started yes. as mayor.
0: And emissions are up.
2: Are up. So, well, and emissions are up. I want to talk about the streets. What
1: are the streets? Yeah, well, I want to point out first that we haven't even covered how deadly this week was for cyclists. Oh, yes, there and were more. Yes. There were two deaths on Friday, oh. both hit and runs. There was a death, a cyclist was killed in North Hills, was hit by two different cars. Yeah. And a pedestrian was killed on Highland and Willoughby in Hollywood. Mm-hmm something else. I also want to mention both of the deaths on Wednesday, the the child in Koreatown and the man on Pico and Sepulveda, both of them died on streets that are included in the high injury network that mm-hmm. as far as I know, I tried to do some research on this, have not seen any improvements since the high injury network was released in mm-hmm. 2017 or, or whenever it was a few years ago. So these are spaces that we know are dangerous, have yep. acknowledged our places where people are killed and injured all the time and nothing has been done. So related and, to, yeah, go ahead. And also
0: related, related to that, the this week they're doing the bike and ped counts. LAGOT is out there counting how many people are walking and biking on certain corridors to try to get this count, which the count has been done before. It used to be done by volunteers. I've done it as a volunteer, like through LA walks. But I got asked about that on KCRW. They're like, oh, isn't this great that they're, count, they're doing these counts so they can know where people are walking and biking. Yeah. And I was like, we have a count. It's called like the deaths of the people yeah. on the streets. Like it's pretty obvious where efforts should be directed. And, you know, of course we should be counting them. That's fine. It's great. The city's doing it instead of volunteers, but we know where the problems are here. Yeah.
2: yeah I mean, the, 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 high injury, injury network that, that we uh, are talking about. That was specifically put out as part of the Mayor's Vision Zero effort for LA City that was intended to, it was, it was basically saying, we need to know where people are most at risk when they're walking, where people are dying the most when they're they're walking or, or getting around town. And that way we can funnel investments into making them safer. Then it turns out, once that network is put together, everything kind of falls apart because The improvements that need to be made in order to make people safer are apparently not worth the expense of political capital, according to the people who have that capital to give. So once the networks were published, basically all work shut down because now we know where uh, where we need to direct these investments but there's no political will to actually do that and and it's just disgraceful really. So
0: my thought was using what market is doing which is a dangerous street of course but also just gets very crowded and it and you know they want to reduce emissions. So this is like a different idea than like when you think of just like we always talk about closing Hollywood Boulevard or different, different places for, you know, to make it like this pedestrian mall type place. This is like you make this you keep the street alive. It's not like you don't have buses running down the middle. And it. it's actually a tool to help speed up the buses. And then there's still places to cross if you're coming from the other direction of the car or whatever. But you are thinking of it as like we're prioritizing people in this area and we're actually going to be able to move more people because people on buses, bikes and walking. Are actually the numbers are larger than the same amount of cars that you move through the space. So this it, we have to just start trying things like this. We have to do it right away. I mean, we we don't really have any other choices at this point yep. in our lives in the city. What are
1: some of the streets people can read your article?
0: Sure, Hollywood is the obvious one. Yeah,
2: you've been the standard bearer on that. I think for it, years. I,
0: I don't see any reason why we wouldn't have this launched around the time of the Oscars. Just keep it closed right. and just keep lengthening the closure and figuring out block by block or whatever and just do it. Another one that I thought about was Santa Monica Boulevard where it's such a beautiful and this goes into West Hollywood but there's this beautiful stretch of it Mm -hmm. that has this grassy median where there used to be a streetcar and it's already got a lot of the good elements for making it this big wide usable street and um, has a lot of buses that get Stuck in traffic, so giving like the 704 and four and other buses uh, a really good lane would be awesome. I think
2: West Hollywood seems like a city that would actually consider exactly. So if they
0: if they started it, and then we could extend it on either side. But that seems like a no brainer for West Hollywood, especially in a place with this active. People are walk to those destinations. Mm -hmm. Like it's a you know entertainment district. It would be so perfect. And then speed up the buses going through there, and then you know the bike lanes already there. Actually, just make it even better. This is something that Scott floated and I looked in the numbers and it looked really good. Alvarado, which yes. has, Alvarado has three pedestrian scrambles on it um, around MacArthur Park because there are so many people walking and getting to like the red line there and walking to buses and, and it's just a very like pedestrian centric district. So closing that would be, Wonderful, not just for the people using the street, but also the street vendors. You walk on the sidewalks there, and there's just tons of people selling things. There's like a marketplace, you know, every single day. So making that street this like street vendor paradise would be amazing. In addition to all the other, you know, benefits that you could bring by moving buses faster through there. Sunset Boulevard, particularly up by the Strip, which is kind of like a dead part of the city in, yep. in many ways, but mm-hmm. is getting tons of apartments being built there right now. So it would be great to just make it in the, another cool district where people could go hang out and make sure that the buses can get through there faster it would i think again like people would probably be okay with that kind of it's part partially west hollywood
2: so my look my question is like are are these more or less realistic that like could we have trouble in LA even discussing from a, from a political perspective even discussing like bus lanes yeah and now These
0: are mega bus lanes. These
2: are mega bus <laughs> lanes. So I, I, I'm, actually, I'm actually curious if they're more or less, if they're harder or easier to well, sell Well, these two than might lanes. be
0: easier, the next two. Grand and Broadway downtown, I think, sure. are pretty easy. And then, because right. Grand makes so much sense. We've talked about it before. There's so many people walking around there. There will be more. I can
2: say, like, if you are driving on Broadway You've made a mistake. What are right? You doing? Yeah, you've Broadway. Ma- too. You've made an error. You probably just realized that you made an error, and you're you're trying to de- desperately get off Broadway right, right. now. Like, why would we not do that? Every is one
0: way. Go- yeah, I mean that. And I thought they were going to actually do that. They actually did change the infrastructure on Broadway to narrow it, and it looked like they were going to maybe kick the cars up, but they didn't. And then the last one, which is kind of like the dream. Would be just making Wilshire a bus street. Yeah, mm-hmm. because think of not only how congested it gets. It already does technically have a bus lane during peak hours. People use it. It's a very big corridor. But again, as the as the train starts to open up its stations, as the Purple Line you know starts extending west, the volumes of people are going to be very high using the street, and we need to make sure that everyone can get around. Cars don't really yeah, need to be I, there.
2: This is the Wilshire is the one where it's like if we if. L.A. were serious about transit as a city, then that would have been something that we would have done during, like, probably the course of the last decade when the 720 and the 20 were so crowded that, like, they couldn't float enough service to to actually accommodate it. And uh, it's only because L.A. has never made any kind of gestures towards being a transit city. Well, that that's that the w- only gesture that they've taken, really. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the
1: only that's bus really only lane only that's been yeah. uh, built out in the last yeah. Like
2: eight yes. years or yeah. more. Yes. Basically, the only one that that we have in place, um, other than that weird like stub one on Sunset Boulevard, and now the temporary one on Flower. Right. So yeah. So that was a major undertaking just to get that, and it's yeah. If we wanted, if we wanted Wilshire well, as a bus only street, yeah. that would be the place to do it. And
0: then I started thinking about like all these BRT corridors we're proposing, which you're right, people are mad about those, but really, cars shouldn't be on those either. They, no, they, totally BRT. Like I was looking at Vermont, I was like, oh, I won't pick Vermont because they're gonna, we're going to do BRT there eventually. But then I was they thought of it later. I was like, No, why should cars be on our bus rapid transit? No, like yeah, corridors absolutely either.
2: Not. Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> anyway, check the comments for a lot of fun <laughs> discourse. <laughs>
1: Here's an area where we are seeing uh, some movement from elected officials. So Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill 1482 earlier this month. This was a bill from David Chu that caps annual increases for tenants at uh, 5% on their rent plus inflation. And it requires a just cause for evictions. A lot of landlords were kind of freaking out about this. And a landlord attorney named Dennis Block at a trade show in, in Pasadena earlier this month, basically said, here's what you need to do to get around this law. You have to evict as many people as possible as fast as you can. Yep. And tenants' rights activists are saying they are seeing a ton of no-fault evictions leading up to this law being implemented on January 1st. So they went to the city council, so they, they said, you have to do something about this. And the city council does seem to be moving on it. There's a question of how quickly but they, uh, they pushed the city attorney to draft an ordinance that would limit rent increases for the rest of the year and would block evictions for failure to pay if the increases are above the cap right. that's being set by the city. So the strategy for landlords would be to gouge as much as, much as possible. The uh, tenants can't pay. They get evicted and you don't uh, you get to reset your rent going into this new law being put in place. But the city council is trying to push for people not being able to do that, landlords. The city attorney pushed back basically saying we don't have enough time to do this seems like the legislation is pretty simple what's being described and it's so temporary I mean it's uh, like
2: it's mid-october this is only through the end of the year so they really didn't the 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 city attorney's office did not want to do this they said that explicitly they did not want to do this they said so they were directed to do it anyway uh, which yes. is good by, by city council but I mean we're getting I don't know we're, we're we're getting a very interesting portrait of Mike Fewers city attorney's office the, the last couple months which does seem to be coming out more strongly as a like I don't quasi reactionary force in favor of homeowners against the progressive policies uh, such as they are being put forward on homelessness and now renter protections. Now, I think that this is very good however I'm kind of astonished that these protections were not put into AB 1482 in the first place. Right. This is the kind of thing that you frequently will see in the language of laws concerning rent control, eviction, etc. cetera. Um, like, for instance, if you look at Costa Hawkins, there is all kinds of language in that bill that was passed in the, the 90s saying that. Local local cities can't change their rent control policies in the period of time before the law becomes active, just to circumvent the mm-hmm. purpose of the law. So that is something that is a very glaring oversight by state legislators when they were putting this together. I will also say while it's, it's very good that L.A. City is doing this, L.A. City probably, if we're talking about the county and and the eighty seven other cities that that make up L.A. County that LA City is probably one of the least affected by this upsurge in no-fault evictions because 75% of the renters in the county are protected by the rent stabilization ordinance, which does not allow for no-fault evictions already. The The just-cause evictions are a protection included in the RSO. Right. So we are getting protections for the 25% of renters who are not covered, uh, which is good, but for the people who don't live in LA City, they are probably already more at risk of these kind of evictions than are uh, than are Angelinos living in city limits. Uh, and also just to give him some credit because he's been taking
1: some heat uh, for policies related to homelessness lately. This was Mitch Farrell who was kind of leading the charge to protect tenants for this period. So there was an article in Vox uh, on the 18th about L.A. by Matthew Zeitlin that was – the article was better than how it was portrayed publicly, I would say – but the way it was framed that I was, like, seeing on Twitter is, like, so L.A. thinks it's come up with a solution for homelessness. Guess what it is? Parking lots. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, brother, of course. That's what the L.A. LA would. Yeah, right. Yeah, typical. <laughs> uh, and it was basically indicting the idea of safe parking as a solution. And like, the article was about how... LA County and LA City are building out their safe parking infrastructure to give people who live in their cars a place to sleep that is safe mm-hmm. especially after city laws like 8502 have been extended every 6 months that make it illegal for people to sleep in their cars in almost all of the city. Yep. You I mean, you were talking about this Alyssa like like how how this article was like framing the issue versus how we see it yeah, as a city. Yeah. I mean
0: I, if you I went immediately to the writer's bio and he lives in New York so it's <laughs> I think, and there's so many there's so many people who uh, work at Vox Media that live in Los Angeles that could have written this story. I think it, it's really dangerous to start calling things like this solutions, right? Because mm-hmm. they are not solutions, and they are not they're nothing but they represent a failure of on one end and a maybe an emergency. I don't even know what to call it. Like, a, you know, something, a step we're taking in an emergency. I wouldn't even say it's a policy because we also haven't done it. <laughs>
2: yeah, right. It hasn't actually been implemented here, which which we should definitely talk about. But I, it's, I, I agree with you in terms of like, it's, it's, it's like if after Hurricane Katrina, somebody was like, we have solved the, the problems that Hurricane Katrina caused for the city of New Orleans by like putting all those people in the Superdome. It's not yep. a, it's not a solution <laughs> so much as it is like a, an emergency measure right like it is it's intended to cover the gap until a solution can be found and implemented. Basically,
1: we can actually talk about how safe parking in L.A. County has been implemented by listing every single one of the safe parking lots in the city without spending too much time. Uh, and I'll just do that right now. Loss have released a list uh, earlier this week. Twenty five spots in North Hills, 25 spots in North Hollywood, 10 in Reseda, 20 in Glassell Park, 20 in Westlake. 15 in Koreatown, 25 in East Hollywood, 10 in Pico Robertson. These are spaces. These are individual parking spaces. These are parking spaces. Wow. 15 in Sawtelle, 5 in Westchester, 50 in Westwood. Those are, that's at the VA. Those are only for veterans. 35 in South LA, 35 in
2: Compton. No, you do. That's you, it. You do a lot of work in this area. Do you know, like, what the like how how do you actually get one of those spaces if you are homeless The answer is oh if
1: you're homeless it uh, you need to be referred through a it's it, it's can't just There's somebody, no such thing as walk-in services or anything in that Somebody books it for you basically Yes yeah, so you need a case manager to say like hey I'm homeless I'm applying for a spot in this lot and then you get it You don't just like drive up and find an available space Right Where, like of course there are reasons for like vetting on these things that are understandable but it works the same way by the way for a bridge home shelters none yep. of those are walk in when people come to sila services on saturday and they're like i want a place to sleep tonight we have to say well it's saturday so none of the caseworkers are going to be available to refer you for a bed in a bridge home shelter which might be full anyway but even if these were drive in parking lots i mean the total number of what i just said is like 250 or something like that That's out pathetic. of 16000 yeah. People who sleep in their cars and in LA out of
0: 14 percent of L.A. County is covered with parking lots
1: like the of uh, yes. the land. And so many of those lots are completely unused or forbidden to be used at night, which are the only times that these would be used. But I've talked in the past about safe parking at the Edendale Library right. uh, and Echo Park, which our group has been fighting for for a long time an unbelievably long time given that the provider Safe Parking LA is ready to go. The library is very excited about it. They're just waiting for the city to draft up the contract. And I've heard from all the people involved many times, like it's coming this week. We hear it's coming this week. It still has not come. It's been like a year and a half yeah.
2: now that we've just been waiting on the city to move. Where's the, where, where the urgency for, for something like this? I, I feel like, so the, like it kind of goes along with what Alyssa was saying. Like if this is not a solution, if it is just a like stopgap measure, Doesn't that mean that we should be acting with more urgency, relatively speaking, because we're trying to do this while we get other longer term solutions in place? Like waiting a year and a half just to find parkings, but like make parking spaces available for people to sleep in just is not an acceptable timeline. And this is how and why local
1: control gets removed. Right. I mean, we had this a very similar process for supportive housing where council offices could just pocket veto yeah. any of these applications and just sit on them because it just basically required a signature that they didn't want to give. That privilege was taken away from them for flagrant abuse. Flagrant abuse, I would say. Is it time yeah. to do that and say if the property and the provider are I mean it's a library, so it's like is a different process. It's a government property. But if the property and provider are ready to go to build one of these safe parking lots, that the council doesn't have to, there is no obstacle that the the council officer or some other government
2: body can provide. I have never met a local control measure that I did not want scrapped um i I mean yeah no I, I I completely think so this this is this is the case where, like you're saying, we end up with local officials saying you shouldn't take away our ability to decide these things because we were already doing it. We were already doing this, we don't need Sacramento to do it for us, but the fact of the matter is they are so lead footed in their approaches to actually acting on these things that they really there really is not a good faith case to be made that they are actively working on these solutions on these measures. They're not doing it. And the people who need it can't wait for them to decide that it is either important enough or politically viable enough to do something about it. So I I totally think that they should have that taken away from them. Opening up the process also would encourage more
1: providers to get involved in this. We have Safe Safe Parking LA is doing almost all of them. But uh in South LA there is, I think, one other provider and uh shower of hope is doing a couple in Glassell Park and Westlake. But by making this a more viable option, then you have more people like getting in the game like there, uh, I saw some lamenting about uh, supportive housing that there's so few providers who are engaged in it. But that's because the process is so difficult. It's so hard to like, get in and to get a project cleared. I think if you make it easier, more people would potentially show up. Let's talk about another thing going through city council this week. Herb Wesson was talking about a $30 minimum wage for rideshare drivers. Scott, do you want to talk about that?
2: Yeah. So basically, this is something that is a a, uh, follow on to efforts that are currently going through at the state level to reclassify um, the rideshare employee or rideshare workers as employees of the companies for which they are working, most notably with AB5 and the the Uber, Lyft, DoorDash sort of, of, of company model where there's contract or gig work that hasn't been typically accompanied with minimum wage and benefits that are given to actual employees of a company. Now the city is looking at this and saying, okay, if starting January 1st, 2020, we're going to begin to see a lot of these companies hiring these people as employees full-time or part-time, that then we would also want to set a minimum wage for them the same way that the city has done for hotel workers fast food workers, uh, general service industry employees over the past couple of years. Now they're looking at doing the same thing for ride sharing, I guess, specifically in this case, employees, where they would set a minimum wage of $15 an hour for the the labor. This is uh, similar to the minimum wage standards that they've set in other industries. Mm-hmm. And then they would also do $15 an hour for basically the depreciation of assets that they are incurring on their using their own vehicle and things like that that's such an important thing that i feel you keep
1: hearing about with like the the, the hidden costs of operating as a driver where you own your car and you are it's costing you money to yeah. drive it around and put wear on your tires and on like the machine itself. Yeah, that are, is not necessarily made back in what you get paid.
2: I will say uh, what what is fascinating to me is whenever you propose something like this. Kudos to, to Herb Weston for for putting this forward. Whenever you propose something like this, you generate a ton of clickbait articles that are like. Want to make $30 an hour? Uh-huh. Maybe you should become a, a Lyft driver. Like the, the, the insinuation that what these people are doing does not merit whatever sum of money is being offered to them. I, I think it's really telling that we don't see the same sort of things when it's like Uber is putting out predatory loans for cars to trap people into working for them at like a dollar an hour. Mm-hmm. We don't see the same sort of like yeah. sensational clickbait. Articles about that. It's only when you're proposing actually like a a livable wage for people that you get a a bunch of denigration and uh, derision. Yeah. So I also uh, always see like EMTs
1: only get paid like minimum wage in these places. But to flip burgers or to just like drive a car around, you should get fifteen dollars an hour. It's like, well, then pay EMTs (laughs) more. Yeah. (laughs) Why is it never just like tied to the cost of what it costs to live? At, at any level of comfort in in an area,
2: instead of just compared to other underpaid right. professions, it's the it is the logic of the race to the bottom. Really, is is pitting people right. who are low low wage service uh, industry employees against each other and making them think this guy's making more than you. Are, yeah. are you are you happy with that, or would you rather see him make less? Yes.
1: Or just that everything is framed as a fight for scarce resources. Like yeah. everyone, every, everything is a zero-sum game. Everyone is fighting for scraps. This is like a big LA thing in general. Everything around transportation. We make cars and bus riders and scooter riders and pedestrians and people in wheelchairs fight each other yeah. instead of everything for like limited space instead of just allocating it properly so it can be shared. Housing works the exact same way. And it's the same way for wages. People mm-hmm. say, like, OK, well, these employees make this much money, then you, the customer, will lose out in a way that has
2: never really materialized. Never happened, yeah. right? I, I mean, I think that this is a really good measure. It's a good thing that L.A. is stepping in to protect the rideshare drivers. I am very interested. We are going to see a very radically different landscape for these workers when 2020 comes around. I'm interested to see how it it shakes out because I think that a lot of things are going to change very quickly. I mean, we actually, so we've seen in the past week, a lot of conversation around AB5, not centering around the Uber Lyft Postmates model, but around like freelance writers. I'm kind of curious, you guys, you guys have both worked as freelance writers in the past. Did you have any in particular take on I don't know, the the, the pushback that was this coming out of that.
1: More in more an Alyssa thing because when I was a, a basketball blogger, I was not getting paid. So that, that is one <laughs> loophole. Well, that, that's one solution there.
0: <laughs> and we're getting closer to that all the time. I think that it's very easy to find a way around it or to... to change the nature of your, your relationship with a publication, you could have like an agreement with them, like a assignment could be like an unspecified number of stories mm-hmm. that you do over a period. And most of the things I had as a freelancer were deals like that. It was like you deliver a certain amount of things in a one year or six month period. So I feel like there's a way to get around it in a way that won't you know there won't be like a cap on like I think it's like thirty five articles. Stories, articles or yeah, like that. I for, think, for I our know.
2: listeners, it was so the the freelance writers have mostly been taking umbrage at the fact that AB Five sets a cap of thirty five articles per month per publication. I want to say that if you exceed that, then the they would have to consider you an uh, an employee. So that from a certain perspective, either force the publications to reconsider how they're actually paying out for articles, as you're saying, Alyssa, or it's going to... I think a lot of people are saying that they're afraid that it will limit their ability to actually make
1: money. I sort of learned a lot about how the industry works for a lot of these people, where they get paid $10, $20 per article for these very short like informational pieces, but that do qualify as articles and just write hundreds of them a day. Yeah, I
0: mean, that's what I was definitely doing when I first started out. like, And it was for very little money, but it, it was, I mean, yeah, I guess under that rule, it, you would have, I would have met, met the quota very quickly. I think there's ways around it. I mean, I know there was a big story, I think it was in the Hollywood Reporter, which got everybody all you know, really upset, even though we've known about this right. since it was proposed, but I, there's been all these other bills proposed to, for, with these exceptions, there's one for like newspaper delivery people, you know, there, there are things they're doing to make sure that AB5 doesn't Affect certain industries in the way that it wasn't intended to, so I can see there being legislation passed, or people just get creative with how they are invoicing. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I
2: mean, my like my my thing is, like you said, is like, like learning about how the freelance writing economy is working right now. I I kind of did freelance writing for a very brief amount of time and completely washed out of it because I I just decided it wasn't possible for me to be able to pay rent at the end of uh, every month, but just like people are coming out with really strong defenses of a system that seems intentionally just like exploitative in the extreme and in a way that is undoubtedly harming them and their, their ability to make a living. Um, I think I get the, I get the, the, uh, the fear of what is going to be replacing that, but it's, it seems like, really a system that is designed to grind people out. And it felt like the reaction
1: of an abused population right? that is like so scared and so wounded that instead of like refining the process of like a, of like a law that is trying to protect them, they, they're so scared of retribution. They're saying, if I hit the 35 article limit, I will not get any more work. They will right. straight up fire me rather than give me benefits. And so, I mean, there are ways around it, like you were saying, Alyssa. But the people in this industry are so scared; their situation is so precarious yeah. that they would prefer to not fight back against the industry at all.
0: Well, yeah, right? I mean, you you would hope that this would result in a good a good outcome for everyone, because you're right that p- freelance journalists are abused. They're they're used they're used by publications that don't want to hire them and that don't want to you know pay their benefits and. LA Times got their um, union contract signed this week. Shout yeah. out. Yes. And I Shout think a big part of something that they had been talking about was how to make sure that they can take care of people who are working on contract and, and mm-hmm. freelance uh, projects there. So hopefully, maybe this will all result in a better outcome for who gets hired and treated fairly.
1: The, the, what happened with the LA Times is such a great response to what I was talking about earlier. This like myth of scarcity and competition yeah. over uh, scarce resources that is such a mutually beneficial outcome for the long-term health of the newspaper and for the ability of its reporters to thrive in the city where they work. Like those mutually beneficial agreements are so much healthier for an institution than one side or the other, like dominating the process. Absolutely. Uh, And I would honestly say that does work for both sides. There are Union management relationships in Los Angeles where benefits to the union yeah. have made it difficult for the institution to survive long term. Right. And so I, I would say those situations are a little more rare than the alternative, yeah. but these negotiation processes can be like the only thing that well, what would have happened to the LA Times if they hadn't, if the if the reporters hadn't come? Honestly, I still, that, I, would I, it
2: still exist? I think that the 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 clearest thing somebody uh, posted on Twitter. Uh, you know, they they were a few months away from being. Strip, Sold for print mind yeah. and turned into uh, like a, a digital content farm. And it is only by the strength of, of their union effort that they were able to stop that. And mm-hmm. and they have done something that is historic for not just themselves, but the, the people of Los Angeles. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. The, the two years or whatever it was that it took them to to get the contract that they did to secure raises for 2000 people working there is is just a a monumental victory really so um i haven't signed it yet but hard to imagine it not getting
1: ratified by the by the report right
2: that that was a a really big thing that came out this week that's just you love to see it really
1: (laughs) i have a a quick i'm gonna sneak in another la story since we have a little bit more time but i got to speak on a panel earlier this week i went into full Alyssa mode uh, <laughs> and does me got a panel at UCLA that I truly did not belong on at all. It was a homelessness panel with uh, Christina Miller, who runs uh, the mayor's homelessness office, Dr. Jonathan Sharon, who runs DMH, and Anya Lawler from the Western Center on Law and Poverty, and Brian Augusta from the CA Rural Legal Foundation, and it was. A panel for I didn't know this is what it was going to be, but it was for all of the or most of the senators, state senators and assembly members for L.A. County. So Laura Friedman was there, assembly member who's been on this show in the past and a bunch of others. I don't want to like name names specifically. But what I thought was really interesting about it was we've we've had a look so often at how the city and county throw the responsibility for our housing and homelessness crisis on the state. And I watched it, for the most part, work in the other direction on this panel. From or Most of the questions from the state people were around the failures of the city and county to end homelessness mm-hmm. locally. So it was a lot of deflection of responsibility. And it was also happening on the city and county side, saying that they weren't getting enough services from the state. And the the reality is both are we're not housing our current homeless population fast enough. I think we're on pace to shelter the existing population in a hundred years if it doesn't grow at all. Shelter, not house, just shelter. And at the same time, the pipeline is enormous. Yeah. And that's a creation of the state. Those are like housing, like pricing levers that are set at the top. Yeah. And that they've made it very difficult for cities to combat at all. And so, you know, the, the city and county housed more people than ever last year. And if the inflow hadn't been so, so huge, we would be talking about last year as an incredible yeah. achievement. It would have been global news that Ali did such a good job uh, in housing all these people if so, so many more people hadn't become homeless as a result of the policies that the state has uh, somewhat contributed to. So everyone there was very engaged, yeah. it was like mm-hmm. very focused on the problem of of ending homelessness, but they were mostly thinking about it in terms of funding. Like, yep. how can we throw more money at this and how is it being mismanaged locally instead of policy fixes that can just allow people to stay in their homes longer? It doesn't like like uh, changing laws like that
2: don't really cost very much. Yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, no. And, and it's the kind of thing that that the policy change can, as in so many other areas, that the policy change can cascade into a lot of other areas and have impacts beyond the original intention for good or bad. But hopefully when we're talking about reducing pipelines into homelessness, hopefully we're talking about increasing welfare in a lot of areas of of our society.
1: And I do think this year was actually a pretty exciting one. We missed out on a lot, a lot of opportunities in terms of housing, but laws like AB 1482, like I think could make a really big difference in people just not being gouged out of their homes. Like it's, When you look at the increase in homelessness, it's impossible to... Increase or decrease, it's impossible to attribute it to any one thing. But it does seem like sweeping state policies like that could help a lot in the next
2: year. And hopefully we won't be counteracting that with like the former assembly member gato's uh ballot measure to increase conservatorship and and sweeps of the homeless yeah i
1: meant to mention uh, thank you so much for saying that because i realized i forgot going in i meant to just mention that and like try to study as many of the faces in the room as possible to see how (laughs) we're reacting to that name but have we talked about that on the we did uh, uh interview we talked about it in the interview
2: briefly briefly
1: yeah Let's just get into that Like for a very short time. This is a ballot measure put forward by uh, former Assemblymember Mike Gatto that would basically recriminalize a lot of the crimes uh, committed by the population of people who are homeless, property crimes,
2: like any... Loitering, sleeping in doorways, public intoxication, public urination, urinating on a public transit vehicle. Mm -hmm. It's broken windows sort of stuff. And I think references that specifically. It does. It
1: would impose a maximum sentence for up to a year. Uh And basically what it would do is route services through the criminal justice system and make it. So, that these people would be arrested, would go to jail, but then the idea is that they would be diverted to services after that and get their lives back on the right track. Yeah. So,
2: it says, it basically says, uh, I, I read it at the invitation of the assembly member himself. Yeah. Because, he likes to mix it up um, online. So, that's something <laughs> that too, you have in common. Uh, it's so, uh, yeah. So, I did read it. And basically, it says that they are, like you said, establishing a a court specifically to handle infractions committed by people who are believed to be crying for help, um, Mm -hmm. broadly inclusive of the homeless, commit crimes or uh, infractions in this case, and that they would, like you said, either be sent to jail where they would receive services diverted to substance abuse, put into conservatorship, indefinitely mm-hmm. it, there is basically it's basically a mandate for a, a broad expansion of encounters between the yes. police and the homeless and then subsequently that puts the homeless under the immediate charge of the state so mm-hmm. that is something that I personally think is a terrible idea for a number of reasons yeah. I, I don't think that increasing the the interactions between peace officers and the homeless for any reason is A good idea i think that we should in fact be doing the the opposite and of of course i don't agree or subscribe to the uh, broken windows policing theory as you
1: mentioned it's a disproportionately black population and the odds of violence uh being imposed on that population and interacting with the police
2: are much higher yeah and, and and also the ballot measure itself specifically calls out mental illness which uh we know that interactions between the the police and the mentally ill also frequently go very badly uh, yeah. and and um, and police have not figured out a way how to uh, I- interact with people who are suffering from mental illnesses without like threatening their lives or, mm.
1: or killing them. So uh, it's more dangerous for everyone on the front end at the time of arrest and on the back end after the point of release. So basically it sounds like there are some improvements in terms of diversion from Under the current system, you go to jail and you like sit in a cell for a while, but this would increase services once you're in the jail. That wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. But on the point of release... People even so say it all worked and people like get their lives back together, whatever you get released into a city and county that right now will not accept you. Yep, there is nowhere for you to live. There's nowhere for you to go. The most likely possibility is that you will end up back on the street. If all of our money is going into jail services instead of services out in the community and new housing and things like that, like people will become homeless again. A lot of this is a reaction to Prop 47, which is a law that decriminalized, like took a lot of felonies and changed them to misdemeanors, a lot of just like uh, comparatively minor nonviolent crimes. And I was reading an LA Times article a while ago where a man who was homeless, formerly homeless, had been arrested for some drug crimes and diverted into rehab programs through the jail system. And he was living in a halfway house. Uh, And he said he was really grateful for Prop 47 For getting him back on track and like setting him on the right path, which he wouldn't have been able to do otherwise if he were just left on the street. That man is dead now. I watched his body being put into a coroner's van at La Brea and Sunset on the hottest day of the year. And the reason I found this article is because I called the coroner's office, looked up his name, and found him quoted in this piece. This kind of process does not provide any permanent solution for people that are in vulnerable situations. It is so easy. As soon as you're released, it's all temporary. All these jail services are temporary. And as soon as you are released, the probability of you falling back into trouble is so high that you will end up back in these very dangerous situations until you yo-yo back into the criminal justice system and
2: And then put put the services in the criminal justice system the only way to access the services is to be in the criminal justice system
1: yes and so people will say like well that's anecdotal that's one person it's not yeah this is what happens with a process that focuses on using prison as a way to provide services for people That's it. Thank you so much for listening to LA Podcast. We will be back next week. Bye.